The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Do need to remind you before we get started today, next Monday night, not tomorrow, but the following, the 20th, we've got a ladies' night of worship for Lent. That's at 6.30. It's going to be over in Creekside really super time of worship, of testimonies about sacrifice as our ladies prepare their hearts for the season of Lent. That's at 6.30. If you want to sign up for that, you can do that on the hub of our website. If you go to the front page, top right corner, click that button and you can sign up. Would love for you to be part of that if you can. Well, today we are in 1 John chapter 2, continuing our series that you may believe. And we've been talking about tests of belief. And a couple of weeks ago, Dave talked about the test of obedience. And last week, Tim talked about the test of love. And today, we're going to talk about the test of Christology. What do you do with Jesus? And I'm pretty excited because I know some of you have speculated about this. You've heard others speculate about this. But today, I'm going to tell you without question from Scripture who the Antichrist is. I don't, I don't know why you're laughing. Um, I'm I'm going to tell you today, you won't have to wonder anymore. What we're going to do, though, is read the Scripture and talk about what John says. And kind of these passages or these verses kind of bleed together to talk about Antichrist and the anointing that God's people have and abiding in Jesus and then kind of what that looks like to abide in Jesus. And so what I'd like us to do is read 1 John 2, 18 through about 29, And then just jump in the text, and we'll go into chapter 3 as well this morning. Children, it's the last hour. And you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us... They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you because, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him. It's shame that is coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Jesus, we want to know you and we want to have our understanding of you 
in such a way that it changes who we are, that we're transformed by your spirit into your likeness. So as we look in your word today, God, would you shape our hearts in submission to Jesus together? In his name we pray, amen. Well, John starts his letter by saying, it's the last hour. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many have come, and therefore we know it's the last hour. There were circumstances happening in the first century in the Roman Empire that motivated John to write this letter. Now, as he writes, what we need to know is he is making a theological argument, not a chronological guideline. He was stating when the last hour began, not when it would end. There was a guy named Domitian. He was the emperor of Rome, and he declared himself to be Lord and God. He's a ruthless dictator. He reigned from 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. He was the son of Vespasian, the brother of Titus, Vespasian and Titus conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, and later in life, Domitian became very superstitious. We are not talking a little stitious, right? Very superstitious. He, he became paranoid like dictators do when their reign is about to end. The last hour had begun at the resurrection of Jesus. It continues today. God and his adversaries were at work in the first century, and God and his adversaries are at work right now. And so when John writes this, there's a threat from Rome, but there's a threat from those who were within the church, or they were claiming to be part of the church, and this was frightening. Sometimes we get frightened too, but I don't think we should be. When you hear the term Antichrist, what book of the Bible do you think of? Revelation. We all think of Revelation. The term Antichrist, how many times is the word Antichrist used in Revelation? Zero. Now the idea is there, and there's this man of lawlessness who might be this last manifestation of all these people, but John, who wrote 1 John, 2 John, where Antichrist does appear, and who wrote Revelation, didn't use the term there for whatever reason, but he says Antichrist have come, and we hear Antichrist, and maybe we get angry, maybe we get nervous, maybe we get afraid, but I think how this section is bookended reminds us that we shouldn't be, right? It's the last hour. You've heard that Antichrist is coming and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. You've heard Antichrist is coming or the, the word literally is appearing. It's similar word that John uses in 228. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at the shame of his coming. So John says, listen, Antichrist have appeared, but we shouldn't respond in fear when we hear Antichrist because Jesus is going to appear as well. He's going to appear as well. So Antichrist has come. Who were these Antichrists that John was talking about back then? Well, he, he tells them they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain they are not of us. So they had been part of this church. They had attended the church. They had been in the church, but they left. Now, are we saying, hey, if people were part of TBC and they left, 
Are they antichrist, right? Or are we saying they've lost their salvation? No, that is not what we're saying, right? And I think if you sat down with the apostle John, he'd say, no, not everybody that leaves the church. There might be a reason someone does, but the people he's talking about. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. And he's not saying they were saved and they lost their salvation. He says they never really were of us. He says they went out and he uses the same verb that he uses in his gospel about Judas when he says he went out into the darkness. They went out from us. They were like Judas. They were not actually of us. John Stott says it this way. They share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. See, when John talks about Jesus and his people, it's clear it's not that you lose your salvation if you sin, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And those who are really in Christ are in Christ forever. We are kept. The grace that saves us is the grace that keeps us and transforms us into the likeness of Christ. A couple of ways John says that in his gospel. In John chapter 6, when he says, I'm the bread of life, he who eats of me will never be hungry. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. Then he says in John 6, 37 through 40 this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. All those who are mine will be mine. I'll raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 10, when Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. He's saying, if you're mine, you're mine. John's not talking about people who were Christians. He's saying they never were Christians. These particular people he's speaking of were Christians in pretense. Their rejection of Jesus, their abandoning of his people made plain they never were really Christians. They denied the Father and the Son. So who is the Antichrist? Here we go. Was it Domitian in the first century? Was he an Antichrist? Yeah, he... He was, right? He was. The Pharisees in John who denied that Jesus was God in the flesh, he said, you're of your father the devil, right? They were anti-Christ. There were Gnostics when John is writing his letters, people who had secret knowledge that said Jesus hadn't really come in the flesh. They were denying the father and the son and he says they're anti-Christ, well, wait, I thought this was an end times guy. What, couldn't it have been Hitler? Yeah, Hitler was antichrist. What about Mussolini? Was Mussolini antichrist? Yes, antichrist. What about Vladimir Putin? Yes and amen, right? Antichrist. What about that politician I really hate? Could he be antichrist? Well, maybe. What about that politician you really love? Could he be antichrist? Well, Maybe. Could be your teenager, right? (laughs) Who is the Antichrist? 
Well, John tells us in no uncertain terms, he's not mincing words in this letter. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, right? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So certainly Domitian going, I am Lord and God, that's Antichrist, right? But anyone who denies the Father and the Son, that's Antichrist. He's not mincing words because this is about the lordship of Jesus, about his being the Messiah. In John's gospel, they were saying Jesus was not God come in the flesh. In John's letters, there were people saying he hadn't actually come in the flesh. Both denials misunderstand that Jesus came fully human and fully God, and these people are trying to deceive believers, and John will have none of it. He says, I write these things to you. He says this over and over and over in his books. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. See, in the first century, there were people who would deceive Christians, and it would it would be people who would deceive them to think they needed works to save them. There were people who would deceive them to think Jesus hadn't actually come in the flesh or Jesus wasn't actually God. And John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you will know the truth because he believes they do know the truth. Well, today we have people who do this with a word. Was Jesus really who he says he is? There was a, someone writing about 15 years ago that, he said, Let, let's just think about it. If theology is like a brick wall, if you just remove that one brick of the virgin birth, does the whole wall fall down? Well, maybe, right? That seemed like a pretty important brick to the authors of Scripture. So he who denies, he who would deceive, he who would trick God's people into not believing Jesus is Lord, this is the Antichrist. But that's not all John talks about. He also talks about anointing. And he tells them that they don't need to be afraid because even though some have left, he says, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I said this wrong in the first hour. I said, you have all knowledge. It says, you all have knowledge. King James, I think, says, you know all things. And there's a footnote in the SV that kind of says, hey, some translations say, you have all knowledge, but really it says you all have knowledge. You've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And we need to see, because of how we would normally read this, what John is saying, this is second person plural. It's contrasted with those who left. There are those who left, but you're not like that. You have this anointing. And anointing is the Spirit of God sent from the Father and the Son. You have an anointing or you've been anointed by the Holy One. Well, who is the Holy One? We see that phrase over and over and over in the Old Testament. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. It's prominent in Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel. And it's talking about God. Well, the phrase the Holy One of God is used twice in the New Testament. And both times it's talking about Jesus the first is in Mark one twenty four. There's a demon-possessed man. Jesus confronts the demon. And the demon says, what, what do I have to do with you, Jesus? I know that you're the Holy One of God. It says that out loud in front of everybody. Well, then there's this other time when Jesus, 
It's interesting that John uses the phrase here because Jesus has said in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And so a lot of people just walk away. We're done. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, do you want to leave too? And so Peter, who is never afraid to speak up, does. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. You are the sent one. And so John is saying, now you've been anointed by the Holy One. And this anointing is the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Holy One of God, the Messiah, has given the gift of the Spirit to His church as He promised. The Gnostics were challenging His authority as Lord, so now they do the same. They challenge with this secret knowledge, well, you don't really understand, right? But because Jesus kept His promise of resurrection and His promise of sending the Spirit, we can know that He is trustworthy and we are empowered. John is echoing in his letter the words of his gospel. You all have knowledge. See, he told his readers from the very mouth of Jesus that when the Spirit came, they would be guided into all truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You will have knowledge. You will have the truth. See, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, he says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He said of himself, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. And because no lies of the truth. Well, what is this truth he speaks of? There's this twofold way Jesus speaks about truth. He says, I am the truth, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And John is saying, when Jesus made this claim, he's given us a spirit that will guide us into this truth that Jesus God the Son came in the flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the life we should have lived, right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but Jesus never did. He lived the life that we should have lived, and then he died the death that we should die because of our sin. He stood as our substitute to take the penalty for our sin, but he also stood as the king stands for his people to be victorious over our enemies of sin and death. And then he rose from the dead. He's the truth, the only way to God. I grew up, we're kind of in the Bible Belt, but I'm talking southeast corner of Texas in the Bible Belt, right? And it was the weirdest thing to me because we heard this verse a lot, but we really all acted like good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. But then you go to a funeral and nobody goes to hell at a funeral, right? (laughs) But the problem is there's just no good people. See, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and Jesus says, I'm the truth. John says, you know the truth, right? Jesus prayed to God that his people would love his word, sanctify them in the truth. That's what he said to his father the night before he died, your word is truth. 
How do we know we have this anointing, the Holy Spirit, in our lives? Because we confess that Jesus is the Christ. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is about Jesus and His Lordship. He's the test. What do you do with Jesus? That's what matters. What do you say about him? Who do you say that he is? See, the Holy Spirit teaches us to abide in Jesus. John 16, 14, after Jesus said, the spirit of truth will come and he'll guide you into all truth, he said, and he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The spirit enables us, this anointing from Jesus, the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us to abide in Christ. And he says, he'll teach you about everything. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. See, people tend to talk about the the spirit in really nebulous ways that aren't connected to the word and not necessarily connected to Jesus. And then sometimes we talk about the word and never really talk about what the spirit does in our life. But there's this reality. The word informs us of the spirit's role in our lives and the spirit illuminates or opens our eyes to see and understand the word so that we can follow Jesus. And there are a couple of mistakes that we make when we see a verse like this. And one of those is we don't read this as second person plural. We read the anointing that you have received. We read it like it's written to individuals and it wasn't. It was written to the church. You together have an anointing from the Holy One. See, those that left might have thought they did too, but they left. We have this idea, I've got Jesus, I don't need anybody else. We hear that sometimes. I don't need anybody to teach me anything, right? Well, is that what John is saying? I I don't think it is, right? What, What we end up doing is not having very many friends and we're alone with our principles and we think that, well, whatever I read about the Bible, that's right, right? What everybody else I understand church history and really all people believe different, but I'm right, right? And I'll fight you about anything. It doesn't have to be the Lordship of Christ. It can be the minutia of theological details. Now, I think that idea is so gross to me because it reminds me of 25-year-old Chase Bowers. But I think also scripture bears out that it's not, it's just me and Jesus, I don't need anybody. See, there's this eunuch that Philip comes upon in Acts 8 and he says, you understand what you're reading? And he goes, how can I understand unless someone teaches me? There are these two guys walking down the road to Emmaus, they had been disciples of Jesus and they didn't understand what happened and he explained to them from Moses and all the prophets, right? And then there's the New Testament letters themselves. Why would we have the New Testament letters if we didn't need anybody to teach us anything? It's a togetherness. We're learning together. We don't need some secret knowledge that's out there. We need to grow together as we abide in Christ. I think another mistake this speaks against, though, and I've heard men and ladies alike say, well, I could never really read or understand the Scripture. And I just don't think that's true. 
I think in community, you, you got the same spirit in you that I've got living in me and we together grow to understand and we mature in Christ together. The spirit teaches us together and our unity together affirms what we understand in the book and meditation on this book will change our lives. It'll change the way we think, it'll change the way we speak, it'll change the way we act and we need to be learning it together so that we can abide because there are antichrists coming in the world. I don't know if y'all have ever heard that, right? But we have an anointing from the Holy One and we are meant to abide. Well, what do we abide in? Well, John says, let what you heard from the beginning, this gospel truth that Jesus, God's Son, came and lived and died and rose from the dead. You heard a testimony from eyewitnesses, he's saying that Jesus rose from the dead, let the resurrection of Jesus, that message, what you heard from the beginning, abide in you. And when it does, you abide in the Son and in the Father. See, there were people creeping in, trying to change the message, and I think what John was saying to them is this message hasn't changed in the last 50 years. And it hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years either. Jesus is Lord. And the message is still that of a crucified Messiah that's a stumbling block to the moralist and its foolishness to those who are wise in their own eyes. But to those who are being saved, the resurrection of Jesus is wisdom from God and power from God. And so John says, abide in Jesus for your own confidence. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him and shame at his coming. I thought Dave did a really good job a couple of weeks ago talking about these kind of two issues. And one is the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of Christ. Are you in Christ? And the other then is your confidence. And the way to have confidence of your assurance is to abide in him, to be spending time with him, to be in relationship with him, to be clothed in him. To be clothed in him. See, when you're clothed in him, you'll have confidence. This morning, I knew that it might be a little bit cold in here. So I put something on that would make me confident I'd be plenty warm. My son-in-law about six months ago said, hey, do you know what Harris Tweed is? And I I said, no, there's a guy used to go to our church named Mike Harris. Is he making jackets now? And he explained to me, it's this kind of tweed that's made certain place in Scotland. They dye it a certain way. It's really, really warm. And he said, it's really expensive, but I found this jacket in a in a goodwill, I got it, and I'm, he was so excited, and he's like, they're really hard to find. I bet you never find one. He was pretty happy that he had it. Well, I go to seminary in Phoenix, and there's a goodwill in Scottsdale, Arizona. Scottsdale's a nice place, right? And the goodwill in Scottsdale is different than the goodwill in Temple, I gotta tell you. <laughs> so I walk in, and I see this jacket that I actually have on today. And I open up and look at the label and I see that it's this certain kind of tweed made in the 1960s in Scotland and it was 9.99, right? I liked where that decimal was. $10 is my kind of jacket. (laughs) See, I got a son that hates wearing long sleeves. And I'll go, hey, it's 30 degrees outside. You're gonna get cold. Well, I'm pretty sure I won't, Dad. Okay, you might not. 
And he'll go outside, and he doesn't have any confidence then. It's kind of cold. Maybe I should wear a jacket. I wish someone had told you that, right? (laughs) Well, see, if you're clothed in, if you're abiding in, if you're walking with Jesus, you're going to have all kinds of confidence. And if you're not, if you're dressed in the world, it's going to be hard to have confidence of your salvation if you're abiding in the world. So he says, abide so that you'll have confidence. And then abide in him to live as his people. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So you abide in him so that you practice the righteousness indicative of those who've born in him, a transformed people, changed into the likeness of Christ. Not characterized by lust and greed and pride and division and anger, but it's abiding in him. John loves this word of. Have you been born of him? He's referring to the new birth that he talked about in John chapter 3. You got to be born again. Something new has to happen in you from outside of you that will completely transform you. It's the life of Christ inside of you. So how do we do this abiding? I think there are three ways. There are more than three, but here are three ways that that abiding in Jesus shows up in our lives. Number one is when we abide as children. Number two is when we abide under God's authority. And number three is when our abiding leads to action. It carries over into our lives. Well, how do we abide as children? We abide as those who've been loved by God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. We could just read that and go full stop. Let's go home. You know you. You know me. You know what's been in your heart and mind this week, right? If we're all honest before the Lord, we'd say, like the gospel said of that lady, our sins are many. But it's not just our sins, it's our sinfulness. And we are called the children of God by the Lord who executes justice and who created the heavens and the earth and everything belongs to him. We're called his children. Now that ought to mesmerize us, blow us away, change us in ways that we wouldn't imagine. But that's not all. That's not all. Uh, we're going to see some commercials today, some of us, right? There's uh, something on TV that has some good commercials and some bad commercials sometimes, right? You remember those commercials on TV that they're selling you something, right? And it's only going to be 19.95, which is the greatest deal you've ever had. I'm glad my kids don't have credit cards because we would have every as seen on TV thing there is. But it's, it's 19.95, right? And it will revolutionize, <laughs> revolutionize your life. But wait, there's more. That's what happens from John, 1 John 3, 1 to 1 John 3, 2. This is the most amazing thing in the world, children of wrath to children of God, right? That's who we are. But that's not all we will be. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What? 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's a transformation coming in us, right? Because we don't want to sin, but we still can. We're going to be made like him because we will see him as he is. And it, like that's it, right? It's not, I want heaven. I want this get out of jail free card. I want all my problems to go away. I want to be like him, right? I want to be like him. And we will be forever and ever. And so John says, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure because he said hey, you're my children. And I have transformed you and I am transforming you, but one day, one day you're gonna be so you can't even imagine it, right? Everyone who has this hope, and I wanna follow him, I wanna be like him, I wanna purify myself like he is pure. I need the spirit, the anointing of God that is in God's children to work in me to change me because I'm his child, But abiding isn't just as his children, it's also under his authority. And here is where this is difficult. I want to be his child, but I don't want his authority, right? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Well, this word for lawlessness is an interesting word. It's anomia, and anomia, you would think, just means breaking the law, because that's what it means to be lawless in our minds, but that's not all anomia means lawlessness isn't simply breaking God's laws. It's an utter disdain for the very idea that we have to submit to God. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody in culture or in the jeans you're wearing today who feels like that. I feel like that sometimes. I don't want to ever feel like that. But see, those who are abiding in him... Don't practice lawlessness, not this utter disdain. This was happening in the first century in Rome, so much so that a guy was saying, I don't have to submit to God, I am the Lord and God. But it was also happening in the lives of his people. Living outside God's authority reveals a heart that doesn't know God. It's this idea, people say it now, no, no, I love Jesus, but I'm gonna do whatever I want to. You can't tell me how to live, the Bible can't tell me how to live. Well, that's lawlessness, right? And here's how we see it played out. I can think whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I can sleep with whomever I want. I can sleep with whomever I want of a different gender. Some of you came into this room today and you're living together and you're not married. That is not God's best for you. You're gonna destroy one another's lives. You need to stop. It's lawlessness, Some of you came into this room and you're sleeping with someone of the same gender. It's lawlessness. God's got something different and better for you. The transforming power of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus. It's lawlessness and no one who practices lawlessness is born of God. John just doesn't mince words. He goes on. 
in case he hasn't been clear enough. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. It's indicative. Whoever's practicing righteousness has been made righteous as he is righteous. And then listen to verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, you just keep on going. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And you just live in it and live in it and clothe yourself with it. You need to test yourself and examine whether you're in the faith. Because he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Right? Born of God, the insinuation is born of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So he says, are, are you the children of God or are you the children of the devil, right? A hard question. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Can you imagine what it's like, what it would have been like to be Eve and you're hearing this curse pronounced upon the serpent? And God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And you go out of the garden and you're waiting for this offspring that's going to crush the head of the serpent, and you have a baby, a lovely young boy named Cain. Well, this is not going well. Well, we also know Abel's not the head crusher, right? Because Cain kills Abel. And the people just wait and wait. And there's floods and famine and exodus and exile. And then, then Jesus comes. Through his death and resurrection, he destroys the works of the devil. So we're called to live in righteousness as the overflow of knowing Jesus. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. John says, this will change you. Some of you, you hear it, you know you need to be changed, right? And he says, abiding leads to action, By this, it's evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And this is what it boils down to, that Jesus Christ has transformed us so much that we understand that God died to bring us to himself and to bring us together so our lives can no longer be characterized by hate, division, separation, anger, We live in love and forgiveness and care and forbearing with one another. Well, you you hear this and you go, man, this is tough, Chase. Am I really saved? Am I really in Christ? I'm wrestling with that this morning, Chase. And I would say that might be a good thing, right? For some of you, it might be a great thing. Paul tells us, examine himself. Let a man examine himself to see if he's in the faith. John has given us these tests that you may know you have eternal life. I want you to have assurance, so examine yourself. Others of you, though, something different might be going on, right? You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, 
And in him there is no sin. See, we read that and we think Jesus came to forgive our sins, and he did. But that's, that's not all this says. It says that he came to take away sin. He wants to take our sins away, right? So for some of you, maybe what needs to happen is you just need to let Jesus take the trash out, right? We think we take the trash out, but we don't. We go put it by the curb, and my children's heroes come by, those guys that drive those cool trucks that pick up that can. You, you wouldn't leave your house looking like this, right? If you're me in college, you would. But you wouldn't leave, you leave this long enough, this cream's real nice in your coffee, but you leave it out, it's not gonna smell real good, right? So what we do is we go, oh, I, I gotta put that away. And maybe it's hatred, maybe it's lust, Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. But you just say to him today, hey, would you get this trash out of my life? It doesn't belong here. Would you take it away? And now's a a great time to think about how he might need to do that because we're going to partake of this bread and this cup together and Paul said, let a man examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. Anyone who eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner brings the blood guilt of the Lord Jesus on himself. So let's take a moment to ask the Lord, is there trash I need to get rid of before I take the bread and eat the cup? Take a few moments to go before the Lord in prayer and then we will remember Jesus together. Jesus, we want to confess aloud to you, God, that we are grateful that you came to destroy the works of the devil. And we're grateful that you came to take sins away. And we're grateful for the promise you made to us, eternal life. So Lord, would you continue this work by your spirit in us? making us into people who practice righteousness and who love our brothers, making, this peop- making us a people who are just blown away that we get to live as your children while we wait to see what we will be. Make us into a people who love the joy of being under your authority. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name. The night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he, with his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, you do it to remember me. And then 
after they finished the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As often as you drink it, you drink it to remember me. Well, Jesus, let us live in remembrance that you lived and died and rose from the dead and we wait for your appearing. Let us live with hope as the transformed people of God. And let us abide in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.